This is a heavy passage of scripture indeed, Uh, most of chapter 3. It's not the happiest of moments in the Bible. Um, We we sort of approach it with sometimes a a difficult um, demeanor. Um, We at times come to church after having a long week, a hard week, and we're looking for something to just lift our spirits and to cheer us a bit, and then we trip over a passage like this. <laughs> um, and I'm a pastor, so I know um, that part of my function is to encourage the body of Christ. And how do I do that with a passage like this? And I hope that by the end you are encouraged and you see the hope in this in spite of its bleak message. Um, all of you, I would assume, are familiar with uh, author Charles Dickens. Um, he wrote a book called A Tale of Two Cities. And we enter into this book, um, this drama, basically, of the French Revolution, and he's describing two competing powers, the cities of London and France, uh, basically articulating different worldviews, different ways of seeing government and life um, and liberty, even. Um, And in the book, he, he unpacks a lot about themes like, especially duality, light versus darkness, good versus evil, talks a bit about resurrection and revolution and all this. And you guys probably are very familiar with the opening line. Um, I'm sure you've all, if you haven't read the book, you've at least heard this. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. Now here are these two cities, the tale of two cities, two ideas, two competing belief systems, this inner war of right and wrong. Uh, He's not the first person, by the way, to define or, or at least acknowledge this kind of tension of light and darkness, of this city versus that city. Um, you know who I think is probably the very first person to famously articulate this is our good Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He said in the book of John, Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. The kingdom of heaven versus the kingdom of earth. The tale of two cities indeed. 400 years later, the Vandals sacked the eternal city of what they called the eternal city of Rome. And it led to the collapse of the Roman Empire in the 400s. Pagan Romans blamed the Christians. Did you know this? Pagan Romans blamed the Christians. The the nation and the empire had left the gods under um, um, Constantine and began to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the city had fallen. And perhaps the greatest Christian scholar of all time, St. Augustine, answers this critique um, by the pagans. And he responds to this attack in his enormous volume called The City of God. Um, He argued, like Christ, that there are two cities, that there's two kingdoms, 
the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man, the city of heaven and the city of earth. One city will end, the other will not. One city is strong and enduring, the other is collapsing. This world, made up of many lost people, establishes a community, the city of man. And the city of man will end while the kingdom of heaven will endure forever. And that's the tale of two cities. And it begins in Genesis chapter 3. Before Genesis chapter 3, we have one enduring eternal kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is quite literally the kingdom of earth. They are both one and the same, the presence of God in Eden with Adam and Eve, his perfect and pure reign ruling all of creation without end. This is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the main theme of the entire Bible, if you want to know what the Bible is about, it is about the kingdom of God from beginning to end. Jesus called it the kingdom of heaven. The establishment, and basically what this means, is that God is ruler, God is author of all created things and rules over all those things in a happy coexistence. So God's rule over all creation, without rebellion, without disobedience, is the kingdom of heaven. And the Lord's Prayer emphasizes this. If you recall, they asked Jesus, how do we pray? And what does Jesus say? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The reason that Jesus needed to pray this was because the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth was divided when Adam and Eve sinned against God. And now it needed to be brought back. God created all things to exist under his happy rule and loving relationship. He created you and me and all things to love him, to enjoy him, to grow in him, to please him, and to be pleased by him. You see, that was God's intention in creation. His kingdom come. To live under his happy rule and loving relationship. And as I said, these are the conditions prior to Genesis chapter 3. The kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of earth. Adam and Eve had not sinned against God. All of creation was not under God's curse. All that kingdom possesses, all that kingdoms possess, excuse me, were present. There was a common people. You know, what do kingdoms need to be a kingdom? Well, they need a common people, Adam and Eve and all their potential progeny. There was a common land, Eden, and the outer reaches to the ends of the earth. There was a common law, right? Kingdoms have laws. You shall not eat, be fruitful and multiply, all these different things. And they had a common ruler, one Lord and one God. But in Genesis 3, their shalom, you know the Hebrew word for peace in the city, for political peace, not just political peace, but divine peace, all sorts of peace. Their shalom, their peace, their unity is disrupted from the king and his kingdom through disobedience. And it splits the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. It creates two cities instead of one city, the city of heaven and the city of earth. And it's in between, friends, it's in between these two cities 
that we have all lived since this infamous feast. We've all lived in between the city of heaven and the city of earth. They sort of overlap at times, and we see the goodness of God on the city of earth. But then we see the evil of Satan as well. It's in between these two cities. We've all lived. It's here is the origin of the divided cities and the struggle that has resulted ever since between what we know to be good and evil, light and darkness. There was a time where there was no city of man, city of earth, city of darkness. The earth only knew the Lord's kind benediction. You know that word benediction means blessing. And it was good, and he did this, and it was good, and he created that, and it was good. All of these benedictions and blessings. God blessed the fifth day. God blessed the sixth day. But here, for the first time, in Genesis chapter 3, the benediction becomes a malediction. A blessing becomes a curse. The blessing becomes a curse. This new city, the city of man, is left to her own doing and has a fourfold curse. And they are the following. Enmity with the serpent, the pain of childbirth, the toil of work, and death. Enmity with the servant, the serpent, the pain of childbirth, the toil of work, and death. Adam and Eve make this dreadful mistake. They sin against God. They disobey him. Then they hide from God, fearing his, dis- fearing his judgment. They, they hide the approaching king and creator. And this guilt-produced shame creates, creates a wedge between them and God and creation. And they both in this condition remain alive. They now live in between two worlds. They live in between the curse and the promise. A curse and a promise. The world of sin and the world of righteousness. The world of man and the world of God. There is this dichotomy, this this division even within our own hearts sometimes of what to do. The difference between right and wrong. God makes a promise here. Now we always see the promises, often as Christians, we see the promises of God as some type of happy blessing that's to come. But here is promises of doom. A God who does not, cannot lie, promises to curse, pledges to curse all people that will include with their return to the dust, will conclude their return to the dust by which they came, which is death, the final price, the final curse. Adam and Eve must now live the rest of their lives. And all of their seed, which is you and I, must live the rest of our lives in a cursed world from which we cannot escape. And oh, this is dreadful news, isn't it? This is why I said at the beginning of our sermon, I know we have hard, long, and at times discouraging weeks where we're looking for a word of encouragement when we come to church, but 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 how can we find it this morning with a passage like this? Adam and Eve must now live, as we all do, in a cursed world. Dreadful news. But friends, doesn't this explain 
It might be hard news, but doesn't it explain the world we live in? And we can resist this. We might not like it. We might, we might be kind of searching for something a little bit more happy in a sermon or when we come to church. But doesn't this explain the world that we live in? Doesn't it touch something you know to be broken deep down inside of you? Doesn't it touch something that you know to be true about the world that we live in? And can't we see in this wars and divorce and earthquakes and suicides and murders and adulteries and bullying and cheating and hiding and all these different things that we encounter and we, we, we stare face to face so often? Isn't it just true that how this explains why all this is occurring in this world? In the dread and the fear through the curse, though, friends, there is hope. You see, we can pretend that this curse isn't here and just try to be smiley. Or we can realize that it is here, but there's an answer. There's hope. There stands a person, Jesus Christ, who aims to rescue and repair because of his great love for us. Isn't that fantastic? He knows your broken heart. He knows the burdens you've carried. He knows the tragedies of your life. And the Christ, the rescuer, the Savior, has come to rescue. And it's this dreadful curse that the Lord, he is not pleased to leave us in. He he does not wish us or allow us to remain in that curse. A curse that starts with, firstly, enmity with the serpent. The serpent is the embodiment of Satan, an angel, (coughs) a rogue angel of God who disobeyed God and took other angels with him in a great rebellion and and tempted Adam and Eve with a lie. Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly all the days of your life and you will eat dust And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now there is a bit of imagery here, a serpent and the seed of the woman. What's happening? What this is referring to is a lie, a lie that Satan told to Adam and Eve to create this city of man that resists the word of God that doesn't believe that God is who he says he is and we take on the authority of God ourselves. We become our own word to ourselves. Okay? It's in this promised curse that we see the tension of good and evil played out. There will be enmity between the seed of the woman and between the seed of Satan, between the kingdom of God and between the kingdom of man. There will be a resistance. There will be a struggle The fact that the seed of woman is resisting Satan demonstrates her knowledge that he is evil and worth resisting. So we can actually see some grace in this. Actually, Eve, there's indication here that both Adam and Eve are saved. They they come to realize what they've done was wrong. Next week we'll see that they're even clothed by God himself. So Adam and Eve, it's very likely, will get to meet them in heaven. Right? They're saved. Eve is struggling against the serpent now as her seed. But there's also a war. There's a war now. There's a resistance. There's a battle. It's difficult. 
And that war demonstrates the continued temptation that we all face to be deceived by him. That's the tension of the worlds that we live in, the city of man and the city of God. Even as children of God, the city of man still kind of crouches in at times, and we have to remember that the word of the the Lord is good and true. This war is timeless, and there's no hiding from it. All the days of your life, he says to the serpent, will you crawl on your belly and war with the woman? Until Christ returns, there is a struggle between the city of man and the city of God. Satan is left by God to test the faithfulness of God's people, his kingdom occupants. The war is between Eve and Satan. Eve's seed and Satan's seed. Eve's children, all of them, who's that? Who are the children of Eve? All of us. Everyone born ever. (laughs) Right? She is the mother of all the living. We learn that later. And Satan's seed are those who, has, who, uh, who have been caused to rebel against God. So there is also not just the fact that Eve is the mother of all the living, but she's also the mother of all the spiritual living, the kingdom of heaven. She's, she's a figure of this in this, occa- in this occasion. There are now two communities, the elect who love God and the reprobate who love self, John chapter 8 and 1 John chapter 3. For as long as these cities exist, there remains a war between humanity and the lie of Satan that he peddles with a question, hath God said? That's the war. That's the enemy. That's what this battle is over. Who is God? God or me? Is it God or is it me? Hath God said? No, he hasn't said this. Well, what does he say? Well, let's talk about that. What do you want him to say? Who becomes God at that point? We do. Hath God said the heart of man is torn between these two worlds, between these two words, the word of Satan and the word of God, and we must choose. Who do we believe? Who do we believe? The seed of Satan will battle for the seed of Eve. And as we believe Satan's lie, we are then his seed. Friends, these hard words in John chapter 8, 44, we are of the father, our father, the devil. When we believe, when we don't believe the Lord, when we don't believe his word, we become the Lord and we commit the sin of Satan. The seed of Eve, who by grace through faith in Jesus is rescued battles this inward lie, but wins. They win. Friends, the unspoken question in this passage is basically this. Which seed are you? Which seed are you? Are you the seed of Eve or the seed of Satan? Are you a member of the kingdom of God and his righteousness or the city of man in their rebellion against him? We are all faced with that question. Which city are we an occupant? Are we a member of? Who do we believe? In the midst 
of this gross destiny is hope and the promise of victory. The battle leaves the people of the heavenly city wounded, right? Their heel is bruised. So we need to fight continually. Doesn't, that, doesn't it mean that repeatedly? That it's a battle, it hurts, it's painful, it's sacrificial, there's suffering. But the assured victory comes not simply by the, the children of God, but by a seed in particular, a particular seed of the woman, promised to us the Savior Jesus Christ, who gains for the rest of Eve's seed, the spiritual seed, the kingdom occupants, the victory. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seeds. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning the person of Jesus Christ. Isaiah says, therefore, I will give him, Christ, a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. You see, his, his heel was bruised. He poured out his life unto death, was numbered with the transgressors, the, numbered with the, city of, the occupants of the city of men. Right, the sinner, sin, people who have sinned against God and not believed His word and made themselves themselves out to be God, He was numbered with them, took the bruise on His heel, died for His people, so that He could gather the elect from all corners of the earth and call a people out to occupy His eternal city, God's city. Amen. Being found in Christ by faith, the collective of people of God, likewise conquer this snake look at what it says in romans in the new testament the god of peace will soon crush satan underneath your feet so in christ that blow to satan's head where he crushed him and his lie we also crush him as well with him amen but it comes with a sting and oh we need to remember that we're promised the victory but it comes with a sting. And that sting is very simply this. Take up your cross daily and follow me. It is self-sacrifice. It is, in a word, death. The sting, it comes with a sting, this victory, for we wrestle with this darkness. The result is that godliness cannot be confused with pleasure. Isn't that interesting? In the Garden of Eden, to follow God before sin was simply happiness and pleasure and joy. But now, in the church, at times, what it means for us is a sting. That godliness doesn't always mean pleasure. So we serve God in the Christian life, not for self-gratification, but because it's the right thing to do. The second part of the curse is pain and childbirth. Pain and childbirth. All that was meant to be a blessing, now, separate from God, turns into pain. You see, childbirth was meant to be a blessing, a joy, but now it's a pain. We crave, we obsess over that which will cause our own suffering. The fruit of marriage is now painful, both in reproduction and in relationship. 
I will make your pains in childbirth very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husbands, and he will rule over you. So here is this war now between man and woman in marriage, and not only in the relationship of marriage, but in the fruit of marriage, and the offspring of marriage is painful. The seed of the woman from which comes the Savior will come by labor, pain. It's not an arbitrary punishment. We, th- we read this and we God is, is God just kind of like sadistically choosing something to hurt us, to torture us? It's not simply that. It's not that at all, actually. This is simply the outworking of our own desires. You see, when we turn against God, when we decide to be like God, when we separate, we want to be God himself, to be independent from him, we, d- we decide that we can care for ourselves. It's simply the outworking of our own desire to be separate from God and self-sufficient. The creature pursues this in vain. We can't be, we can't be self-sufficient, friends. We learn that we have a great need to be plugged in, to be united to something else besides ourselves. We can't exist on our own. But now that God is out, we have to plug into something else. Unplugged from God, though, we can only plug into something that can never satisfy our soul, which is why it causes pain. We find out very quickly that our husbands, that our wives, and that even our children cannot cannot satisfy this deep, abiding need that we have to be connected to God himself. So we pursue it to our own peril, and it hurts us. The other cannot satisfy you. Did you know that? Friends, this means something kind of practical. If you're getting if you're pursuing a relationship with another person to be happy and to be complete and one, you'll never find it. As a matter of fact, it will reverse on you. It will become an ugly pain. And you'll be shocked and disillusioned. There is a war of power now, a suffering in fruitfulness. And third, there's a third curse, the toil of work. The toil of work. Now, work is not the curse. Adam had a lot of jobs to do. Did you know this? In Eden, and so did Eve. The work itself is not the curse, but it's the toil in the work that's the curse. The earth is now resisting what was supposed to be basic fruitfulness. It's resisting life-giving production for man and woman. It's resisting its servitude to humanity by producing all sorts of food. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. Um, a couple of years ago, I bought my, my wife and I bought a house in Warren right down the street. And um, we have a, a little driveway down the side of our street to park our cars. And on the side of our driveway to the left, there's these bushes, um, just like a line of bushes. It creates kind of like a natural fence between our yard and our neighbor's yard. Well, in these bushes, there have 
been vines kind of growing up in the bushes. You guys know what I mean by vines? Right, so there's bushes, but also somehow these vines started growing in there, and they go in and out. And it's very scary. It's like a scene from Jumanji because they're so long now. Like, they look like they're reaching for us. Have you seen this dynamic in vines? Like, it's, it's terrifying. Like, it's going to, one day our car's going to be gone. <laughs> you know, so that's, that's partly what's happening here. The earth is now hostile to reproduction. And didn't we see this before, even in, the, even in labor for women? Now the, hu- the human body is hostile to reproduction, as is the earth. There is now, like the relational divide between man and woman, why do we fight? Why do we get angry with each other? It's not just marriage that this happens, right? There's a power struggle between all of us. That, that curse is laid on every single person, where we, we war for power. <clears throat> but now this relational divide has crept into even the earth itself, a divide between the created thing and humankind. Now this proto-couple, right, this first couple, Adam and Eve, all they had to simply do in the Garden of Eden was reach out their hand and grab the fruit from the trees. That's all they needed to do. The earth produced and they received. But now the ground is cursed. It becomes hostile to this reproduction. All fruitful blessing becomes a struggle. Right relationship with God becomes a struggle. Right relationship with each other becomes a struggle. And right relationship with the earth becomes a struggle. It comes by the sweat of our brow, by very severe pains, and by a bruised heel. You see, the union back with the creator requires the death of the seed. Our union with each other and ma- as, as man and woman requires a painful process. We can still produce food, but it's painful. The creature who thought they could live like, we thought we could live like God. We thought we could be independent from him and self-sufficient. Now we endure the rebellion of the ground, the trees, and the skies and the seas. We are resisted day and night in our aim to work the fields. We're met with disease and droughts and thorns. I was talking with, uh, with um, there's a farmer down the road. His name is David Frerish, and he runs a farm down the street. And he told me recently um, that there's a high um, population spike of deer in the area. And um, um, for various reasons, environmentalism, hunting, is, is low lately, so there's just more deer. And because of this, they're eating up all his crops. He's got this big problem on his farm right now. And so in our aim to work the fields, we're met with d- disease and droughts and thorns and bugs and animals. In our flight to the sea, let's get, go to the sea for food. Well, there we find winds and storms covering and destroying us. You guys know who Martin Luther is? And what if th- he says this, kind of quips, And what of thorns, thistles, fire, water, caterpillars, flies, fleas, and bedbugs? (laughs) He says the earth doesn't produce things like this on its own. It's because of Adam's sin now that the entire creation in all its parts remind us of the curse that was inflicted because of sin, because of our sin. Friends, how many reminders are we given daily 
of the awful price of defined independence from God. We still live in it daily. Every time we lift food to our mouth, we should be reminded of the struggle that was created to get that food and why that struggle is. Every drought, every plague, every disease, every flood, every labor, every fight, every, every divorce, every lie, every adultery, it all, all, becomes, it all comes to us because of our shared guilt and, and sin that we participated with in Adam. Dr. Atkinson said, now in everything we eat, there is a reminder of sin. Isn't <laughs> doesn't seem like a pleasant outlook of life, doesn't it? Can I just enjoy my cheeseburger? <laughs> Calvin repeats, though, as often as the sight of a serpent inspires us with horror, the memory of our fall is renewed. All is the result of the sin we have all committed with our first parents. Our responsibility, our nakedness, on display every day. That's some bad news. It's tough to talk about, but there is light. There's light in this. You see, friends, if we're ever going to make sense of life, if there's ever going to be hope, we have to acknowledge the elephant in the room. We can't pretend it's not there. We have to call it out. That's the only hope we have, to be honest with ourselves about who we are, about what we've done, not so that we can be self-deprecating, not so that we can feel like we're losers, but so that we can be saved, so that we can be rescued, because there's a plan of rescue. There's hope. Dr. Bonhoeffer said this, the world is changed and destroyed in that human beings in their dividedness can no longer live with God, with one another, and with nature. Oh, isn't that true? The world is changed and destroyed in that human beings in their dividedness, we can't live with God, we can't live with each other, and we can't live with nature. Yet, in this dividedness, they also cannot live without God without one another, and without nature. You see, there's a tension. The city of God and the city of man struggling. We can't live with them, can't live without them. Right? In this dividedness between good and evil, they also cannot live without God, without one another, and without nature. They do live in a world that is under a curse, yet just because it is God's curse that oppresses it, the world is not holy, God-forsaken. Did you hear that? Oh, that's beautiful. They do live in a world that is under a curse, but it's God's curse. That means that God's here still, that he's present. The world is not holy, God-forsaken. Instead, it's a world that even under God's curse is blessed. And in its enmity, pain, and work is pacified, a world where life is upheld and preserved. You see, the presence of God is here. It's under a curse. But God is here. And where God is present, there is hope, friends. There is hope. The final curse to which all of this leads is death. Until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, into dust you will return. Bad becomes worse. Enmity with Satan, struggle in marriage and childbirth, 
enmity with the earth, and now, at the end of it all, death. A great and sobering reality indeed, that the life that we are all preserved to live in a present cursed earth is preserved for death. Our life is preserved for death. And should we dare to accuse God of some sort of cruelty towards us, let's just simply remember that death is the consequence of what we wanted to begin with to be him, to be rid of him. And because we are, we are the created thing, we can't live without him. We are unplugged. We die. So in our bid to be like God, we implode under the request granted. He grants us our request. We aim to live under our own resources, and we fail. Childbirth doesn't work. Marriage doesn't work. The ground doesn't behave. Nothing works. And finally, we burn out like a light bulb, and we die. We live as one author said, on our way to death. We cannot escape from the curse of life or death. Yet, friends, under this curse and threat of death is a promise. And that promise is simply this, that death is going to die. Death is going to die. It's the death of death. You see, imagine living in a God-forsaken earth forever. Imagine living a life God-forsaken forever. It's a grace that God gives his people to die and to be raised to new life, to be living with him in a world without end. Amen? So death is a curse, but it's also a blessing. Jesus said, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look. I am alive forevermore and forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. You see, death is the end of the God-forsaken city of man that lives in the lie of Satan and will end for once and for all. Scripture says this is the second death. How could Adam have known that by this curse would come his rescue? Death in Christ is now for the Christian a shadow swallowed up in victory. Amen? Enmity with God and Satan is destroyed in the death of the Christian. Enmity with each other is destroyed in the death of the Christian because the death of the Christian is his life eternal with God. Death itself is not a God-forsaken nothingness for the seed of Eve but it's the shedding of the seed and scent of Satan and his earthly city. Since the, children of since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear. You see, friends, when you come to Christ, you are no longer a victim of the curse. You are no longer other, uh, on the other end of that doom. You're given a promise. You're given a hope. Through death, Christ destroys death and delivers those who are subject to a lifelong bondage. 
friends, come to Christ and be delivered from a lifelong bondage. It's in his death that death is swallowed up in victory. Friends, come and get it. You see, we all can't deny that we walk around with this curse on our back. We all can't deny it. You have one of two options. You can try to get it off yourself, or you can trust in the risen Savior to remove it for you. Can I encourage you, implore you, to come to Christ. Take door number two. (laughs) Because door number one is just an empty cave. It leads to nothing. It leads to separation. It doesn't work. Friends, in Christ is life and freedom. In Christ, we who are once banished and cursed are received back and blessed. Isn't that great? We who are once banished and cursed are received back and blessed. Genesis 1, chapters 1 through 3, we read all about God's kingdom created and then lost. And it's not until chapter 12 that we have a clear promise of who this seed is, the seed of the woman who will rescue us, who will restore, by the way, God's people, God's land, God's law, and his ruler. All things, and we, will, we get to that in chapter 12. When he comes, when this seed comes, Christus Victor, Christ the Victor, the champion, the rescuer, disarms Satan and conquers death, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And when I say death, please recognize I'm not just talking about physical death. I am talking about that changed condition of separation from God. And since that separation, we've tried to find God in everything but him and carried nothing but our own misery. Friends, that's crushed too. In Christ, we find life. Christus Victor disarms Satan, conquers death, removes the curse, becomes the curse for you. Isn't that great? While we wait, even now, Genesis 3 teaches us that God's kingdom is piercing through. He covers us now, friends. Come to him now. Receive the covering of Christ. He approaches you now. Hiding behind a tree, he approaches you because he loves you. He speaks to you now, this moment, through his word, through all the created things. We're going to see next week that Adam and Eve are both covered by God himself and banished from the garden. Oh, again, isn't this harsh, God banishing them from, from the Garden of Eden? Isn't that sound, doesn't that sound mean and vindictive? Well, friends, you know why? Because God said if they eat from the tree of life, they'll live forever in this condition, separate from me. God says, no, that's not good enough. They, this old self needs to die. And they need to be given new life. They need resurrection. Jesus said, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. He said earlier, No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. You see, Jesus kills this walking death. It seems harsh. It seems mean. But in it is the desire to give us a new life united to him. So death is both a curse and a grace. And that curse is this basically this divided new world, but the grace is that this world will end. And for now, we live in between. 
his city and this one. God's seed and the serpent's seed. Which are you? Let's pray.